You're listening to Garibaldi Red, a Nottingham Forest podcast brought to you by Nottinghamshire Live. Hello, welcome to Garibaldi Red and as ever during an international break we like to catch up with a former Forest player or manager and this week we're delighted to be joined by former Red striker Simon Cox who recently announced his retirement so we're going to hear what he's up to these days. Uh, Simon, hello, are you well? I'm very well, thank you. How are you? Yes, good thanks, good, good. Um, well, like we were saying before, you, you just announced your retirement was kind of made me think, oh, you, you'd be a good guest. I guess it's not an easy decision to call time on a, something you've dedicated yourself to for so long. Was there a, a particular trigger moment that made you think, oh, it's t- time's up for me? Or was it just a, a gradual thing? What made you finally decide to retire? Uh, I think it was more on the basis that I came back from Australia Um sort of tried to find a, another club here and uh, it wasn't the case, which is fine. Um, and then I just decided that it was, it was probably time. I just, uh, you know, I started to write my um, retirement speech and I always said that when I did write that, if I felt that I was doing it at the wrong time or I felt sad by writing it, I wouldn't have retired. I would have just tried to carry on as much as I could. And I obviously had the the mindset I would try and play until I was like 40 years old, but that, sometimes the mind and the body just doesn't allow that. Yeah, you're only like 34, is that right? You didn't fancy, um, like Nathan Tyson's been on here for, for quite a few times. He's still going at almost 40 for Chesterfield. You didn't fancy trudging around in like National League South or the Ryman League or something just to stay in a dressing room then? Yeah, I mean, I I kind of did, but uh, but then I kind of didn't as well. So I just sort of thought to myself, some people don't get to retire on their own uh, on their own wishes, and and it was something I always sort of wanted to do. I always wanted to go out on my terms, and um, and you know, free of injury. You know, I've got young kids, so I want to be able to you know be walking around with them, go to the park and whatever. And I didn't want to be somebody who you know, you'd be walking around and the knee start hurting or the ankles don't don't work anymore. And it just uh, it just wasn't that sort of I didn't have that mindset to to continue for the next sort of three or four years and and potentially get a lot more injuries and that wasn't something I had in my mind to do. If we um look at your career, I mean you played international football for Ireland, you, you played in the Premier League for West Brom how did you end up at, at Forest you came at an interesting time which I'm sure we'll touch on but what's the story behind coming to the city ground yeah I mean uh you're right it was a very interesting time um there were a lot of changes happening around the football club at the time and um I was sort of surplus to requirements at, at Forest uh, at West Brom sorry um because of the the people that were going in there at the time um and I had a choice of a, of two clubs, Forest and, and Blackburn, and where I was living, obviously in um, in Birmingham. You know, not, Nottingham's only around the corner, so it was uh, it was nice to to be able to you know first and foremost live where I, I was um, and commute every day. Uh, you know, ultimately in the end, I, I ended up buying a house in Nottingham, which was nice. But um, but yeah, that was sort of how it came about, really. Surplus to requirements at West Brom, and and I had a choice of two clubs, so it was nice. So you come in twice. You're one of the first signings of the Fawaz era, which was just you know mad having had so many people on here. But you saw the very early days of it. I mean, what were your first impressions of the club? Did it? Did you get a sense that they knew what they were doing, basically, or not? Well, I signed under Omar. Omar oh, okay. 
Omar was his cousin or cousin, yeah, one of the family, yeah. Yeah, so I signed under Omar and, um, you know, got walked around the the training ground, uh, got taken to the stadium. And listen, you can tell that it's a big football club. You can tell the history's there. You get that sense of feeling that this is a football club that is kind of like a sleeping giant. It, it very much is shouldn't be where it is, but is where it is for, for a number of reasons. Um, and it just needs a bit of guidance. Um, I was kind of hoping that, I would I would walk in and uh, and all of a sudden there would be a lot of changes um, and and the changes that I was expecting to be made weren't <laughs> in terms of ownership it wasn't uh, managers it was it was players coming in um, you know you sort of saw the the potential funding that that uh, Omar and Fawaz could could potentially have and uh, you're expecting top top quality players to walk in the door and and you know there were some but then there were there were some some not so good ones as well so that was uh, the, a bit of an issue but you know that's that's football what was the dressing room like when you go in there because there obviously there's players from the Nigel Doughty era when things were a bit ropey financially at the end then there's a big influx of players including yourself was it uh, was there good chemistry or was it a bit tough to kind of get that bond going initially no, it was a, it was a good dressing room. It was uh, it was a dressing room that uh, was probably when I walked in, it was very excited. Obviously, because of the new ownership, the potential for good quality players to be walking through the door. So it was it was an excited dressing room, um, but it was one that had seen a lot of tough times and um, and just needed picking up a little bit. Uh, so it. You know, like I say, it was it was a nice dressing room to walk into. It wasn't a tough dressing room. It was, uh, you know, had some good quality in there already, which you know we tried to to add to, but um, got got a little bit unstuck somewhere along the line. Yeah, it was was O'Driscoll the first manager? You didn't work under Cottrell, did you? No, Sean no, was my first manager. Yeah. What was Sean? I mean, I've Sean's been on here, and he, you know, seems like a really good guy, and probably didn't know exactly what he was getting into the way he went to, you know the team wasn't doing too badly when he went at all I mean what was he like to play for yeah he was he was fine he um I sort of liken him to like one of your nicest school teachers really um so he he basically you know I walked into the dressing room or walked into the uh, training ground when I was being shown around I sat down with him and Rob Kelly and it was you know a nice chat it was and this is where we're going to play. This is the way I want to play. This is how I do my day-to-day stuff. And this is what I want from every player. So, you know, he set his stall out quite nicely and and it was something that I was I was happy with. Um as you as you pointed out, he we weren't really in a bad way when he got the sack, but the way that um you know Fawaz was the way he was when uh when he took over, it was very trigger happy and um, it doesn't matter if whether we were, you know, eighth, ninth, fourth, third or second, it, you know, I sort of feel that he could have been, uh, you know, unfortunate and losing his job no matter where we were in the league, which is a bit unfortunate. How do players respond to managerial changes like that? Especially at Forest, there was such a high turnover. Does it become water off a duck's back or do players kind of get a bit annoyed by it what's the response in general well you do yeah i mean you do get annoyed by it because 
there's never really a, a chance of being consistent. And um, and like you said, because we were in such a we were in a decent place at the time, you kind of don't understand it either. Um, but then as a as a player, you sort of you, you get this sort of the difference of opinion because if you're playing under Sean you know, he's the best manager in the world because you're playing every week. But if you're, if you're not playing, he's the worst manager. So somebody else coming in gives you, you know, a bit of a reprieve and you're able to start again and see if uh, somebody else likes you and plays you. So it's, um, yeah, I mean, there is a little bit of a, you know, sort of touch and go depending on how you how you feel the manager's treated you before, really. So the next manager is Alex McLeish, who seems a different kind of character to Sean. Um, I think he would have played different football. It's probably a bit more direct. I remember. I don't know if that didn't. I guess it was more direct. I guess that didn't suit you at all. <laughs> so it's hard to remember. He wasn't there for long. But was that that must have been a an interesting period then? A very short period. Yeah, I mean, we. It was it was very interesting because, I mean. Anybody who's been to the training ground knows the sort of layout of the training ground and especially the building. So, you know, we were in the dressing room at the time and we'd obviously seen on TV or whatever or been told that he was being appointed. So, you know, players were a little bit like, okay, so we kind of know what what way he wants to play. He's, you know, very direct. It's normally a big guy up front and it's sort of kick it up to him and get round it. and, And, you know, there's not very much passing around so it's uh so we understood that uh, but I think my my sort of thing was every player understands or every player gets a a sort of idea of what the manager is going to be like in their first meeting um and at the training ground you've got the dressing room in the in the far corner and then you've got a meeting room that is just outside of the uh of the dining room and uh you know very adequate di- um meeting room which is where you know every manager does his pre and post match stuff um training videos all that sort of stuff and Alex McLeish came into the um into the dressing room and he he held his first meeting in the dressing room which was which was fine you know is no problem but um we we were in our environment and we needed him to be in his and and that's where you know he would have stood up and and been his presence and everything else but I mean his first meeting just didn't didn't fill you with a lot of confidence really it was one of those where I just looked at him for kind of feel like you've taken a job that you didn't really want to take and it's you know doesn't really sort of suit you personally and and as, as it was um it didn't really <laughs> you know it wasn't there very long Did, is there a point where you realize pretty quickly then that this isn't going to work out and then how do you respond to a group of players when you know a manager's probably not going to be around for long because managers can throw can be thrown under the bus and sometimes I guess players can do that are you going to tell me that that doesn't happen or not no I mean well no I've never been in a dressing room where players are down tools that's just not some something I've ever seen it's definitely not it's not something that I've ever done Um, but I think the I think the writing was on the wall when we played a home game and I can't remember who it was against, but the fans started singing, we're not in a forest and we play on the floor. Um, So I think that maybe, uh, that maybe sort of gave it a little bit of a a forward nudge to the owners that, um, that Alex McLeish probably wasn't the right person that they appointed. So, um, 
Billy Part Two is the next um, <laughs> manager to come in. Uh, every player that I've spoken to absolutely loves Billy, and I guess you're probably going to tell me the same sort of thing in terms of coaching, organisation, um, man management. But he obviously has some flaws as well. Um, what what was your, what's your verdict on Billy in general? Yeah, I'm not going to be too much different. I don't think. Uh, like loved him, thought he was amazing to work for. Very intense. Um, <laughs> just very. Uh, for, uh, didn't know really what what you were going to get every day, so kept everybody on their toes. But as a as a coach, you know, top coach. Um, very intense. Like I say, he's um, he wanted you to work as hard as possible. Um, believed everything he said um got everybody else believing exactly what he's saying was was you know gospel pretty much um so he was he was very good but you know his paranoia probably it doesn't help him somewhere along the line so but you know he's he got us doing what he thought we were we were really good at and um and he got us back on track pretty much yeah, one of the previous episodes we did on here was about what it's like to be a manager. And I think it was Frank Clark and Paul Hart were on. And Frank said, and Paul said more than once, uh, every manager's paranoid to some degree. Um, I, was Did Billy take that to the nth degree? And really, that was that, that was really hyped up with Billy then. Oh, God, yeah. Um, I, I, I get that. I get the paranoia bit. But I think you can go in a completely different, far away uh, mind than than what um, is probably expected for, of you. So, whereas Billy was, it was it was kind of like everyone was out to get him, which sometimes can actually not be a bad thing because you know you, you're always on your game. Then it's not you know you, you never rest on your laurels a little bit. It, he was always that intense that he always felt that you know somebody was talking about him or somebody was talking about his players or somebody was talking about the football club or you know whatever it was and it was wrong and he was going to prove them right and that sort of thing so you know sometimes you know paranoia is not a bad thing but taking it a little bit too far with billy sometimes did that manifest itself in any weird ways or was it just kind of a general general theme with billy that he always was kind of on the edge a, a little bit or not. We played Burnley away and, and he ended up getting the press secretary at the time to film the press because somebody previously had written something that Billy hadn't said. So he needed to make sure that what he was saying was written in the press or, or portrayed in the press um, the next day or the next week or whatever. So that was, you know, that was the way that he had control of the press as well and you know ultimately he didn't have a bad time at Forest and um but I think sometimes it does it does sort of lead to his uh, demise a little bit on the pitch that season you were so close to making the playoffs I think it went down to the final game against Leicester didn't it when Billy did that weird thing of doing his press conference before the game I don't know if the players even remember that or not but did you feel like you were a bit unlucky not to get into the top six that season yeah, I think, you know, I think it started with the the Sean O'Driscoll sort of sacking where we were in a decent position. We weren't, you know, we'd lost a couple of games, but we weren't in a in a free fall at all. Um, then obviously Alex came in and, and it was over the sort of Christmas period. Then Billy came in and we were, we got back on track. We just started to draw a few too many games. Um, and then it was, um, we 
we've sort of found that momentum that little bit too late. Um, and it was like the Burnley game where I think we, we drew 2-2, two, two, I think it was. We were 2-1 two, two, down and we, we got a penalty. Lewis scored in the last few minutes, a penalty. Um, but that last game, I remember the, the meeting a couple of days before and Billy, it was like me, Dex, Darius Henderson, Matt Derbyshire, uh, and maybe what I can't remember who the other one was. Um, and, and Billy was like, listen, I'm going to reinvent hell for leather. I'm going to, I'm going to throw on every single one of you. If we need it, I'm putting every single one of you on and we're going to go back to front and we're going to cause absolute carnage. And I think we were all on the bench as well. Or, you know, some, obviously some started somewhere on the bench and I could just remember, I just remember like last few minutes, um, yeah, we needed, I think we needed to win to get into the playoffs and, uh, and uh, was it 2-2, I think the game in the end. And, um, I just remember like at the end of the game seeing like five or six of forwards on the on the pitch and you just like going, Oh my god, we were like all over the place. But you know, I can understand that he needed to win to get in there. And I think one thing that he would have been good at is playoffs. Um we would have got, you know, they are one off games and and putting a one off game into like a, a forty six game season, I think it would have been right up his alley because I think he would have got us over the line as well. Yeah, he'd lost a couple, hadn't he? So you'd hope he'd learn from it, certainly. Um, you scored, I think you got like 15, 14 or 15 goals for Forrest and there were some good ones in amongst them. And I guess every interview you do uh, and probably every conversation you have in the pub involves the goal against Birmingham where um, Magoogan clips it in and you take it down. You, you kind of uh, take a touch and lob it in the same motion almost. I mean, just talk, was that, I guess, was that the best goal of your career? Just talk us through it. Yeah, I think so. I think um, I think anybody who sort of ever searches me or, or you know, if I speak to someone who doesn't know me and then goes and searches me, I think that's one of the first things that, that sort of comes up really. Um, but it was just one of those, it was one of those goals that, um, it just came from such a distance and, Listen, every Forest fan will will remember that I'm not the quickest person in the world, but somehow I got got in front of um, of their back line or in behind their back line, and and I was stretching so much that I don't know. Maybe it was the the sort of touch that happened, that, um, and then obviously Jack Butland sort of rushing out. I was able to. I think he sort of made my mind up because I think if if he had stayed in goal, God, I probably wouldn't even have scored. So. Um, so yeah, I think the ball over the top, obviously a great a great ball, and um, the touch sort of set up the goal, and and because of who's in goal, and um, you know future England international at the time, and um, yeah, it was just it was just such a such a nice goal to have. I would loved it to have been in the sort of 89th, 91st minute for a winner, um, because I think it would have been probably talked about for a lot longer than it than it did, but. You know, ultimately, it got us a it got us a point, and it was a point that we we probably needed um, at the time as well. Uh, like I said, McGugan passes you the ball. I always find him one of the most fascinating players because he was so talented. He scored ridiculous goals, but he, his career had petered out by the time he was like twenty nine. I don't think he's played for three or four years now. Um, what was he like to play with? I've heard some people say he was lazy and others say that's not, not a fair reflection of him. What was your experience of him? 
I think he was a he was a maverick player. Um, he was one that you needed to allow the freedom of the pitch to do. He wasn't somebody you could rely on to um, to sit as a as a sort of sitting midfield player or, or defensively. You wouldn't probably count on him too much. But the other way going forward, he was you know you could allow him to to do whatever he liked. Um, he. Lazy, I don't think is a, a true reflection of him. I think he just, um, I think if somebody would have been able to get hold of him and say, listen, you know, you've got the ability to go right to the top. Because I remember him even before I joined Forest, you know, being talked about when he was at England, you, um, underage levels and stuff and being talked about playing in the Premier League and stuff. And you could easily have seen it, but maybe his work rate or maybe somebody not just getting hold of him and saying, look, you know, the reason you're not in there at the minute is because of this. So if you do this and you sort of live right, then maybe it was, um, maybe it was that he maybe, or, or maybe just, you know, kind of didn't have it in him. I don't know, but um, listen, lovely lad, like really good player, but um, probably a career that he'll look back on and just say, you know, if I'd have done that or what, if I'd have done that, you know, maybe I'd have had a better, a better career. Are players like that frustrating at the time when you can see the talent or do you have to kind of have a degree of acceptance? Because every team has a bit of a, a maverick amongst them, like Boris have had Collie Moore in the past and people like that. Does there have to be a degree of acceptance or do you find yourself tearing your hair out at them not delivering what they can? I um, mean, I've not got much hair left. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I think he, uh, yeah, it is, it is frustrating because the ability that he has or had, you know, if he if he, if he, if he's even retired, I don't know. But um, but the, the ability that he had when I was with him, you know, you could see there's a player in him. It was just that in a, and you, sometimes I've seen this loads of times. You end up wanting it more for them than they actually want it for themselves, which is which is ludicrous because I've seen so many players get to the top purely based on hard work, not necessarily on, on ability alone. You know, if you can get the ability to work alongside hard work, it, it you know, it's a marriage made in heaven. So he just needed that, possibly that arm around the shoulder or maybe even a little bit of tough love. You know, if he would have bought into that sort of thing, then uh, he would have definitely been a player to, to have looked out for in the Premier League, 100%. If we start looking at like your second season at the club then, did you, what was the kind of, expectation and hope that you had going into that second season having come close with half a season under Billy were you pretty optimistic going into the 2013-2014 season yeah absolutely we we had a really good pre-season Billy um, and his coaching staff believed 100% that we would win the league Um, and he got us believing that and I think one of our first ever meetings when we came back from or leading up to the first game of the season was if we won the first 10 games of the season, which they believe we could have done, um, you straight, straight onto 30 points when everybody else is on, you know, 10, 12, 15 points, whatever. Um, you can just basically cruise along to the finish line and, and say, thanks very much. We, you know, we've done it the easy way. Um, and, and we believed that that was possible. Um, you know, it never worked out that way, but, um, and then all of a sudden, possibly things started to unravel because it wasn't happening the way that that he wanted it to, and and things started to uh, you know start to fall away a little bit. 
the squad did change, not too dramatically. You added, I've got a list of who you added here. I mean, you players like Patterson, DeVries, Abdul, Mackey, Kelvin Wilson, Jabor, Jacobs, and Danny Fox came in. Is that a mixture of uh, lads in terms of quality and character there? What, what was that influx like? Yeah, I mean, when you look at even just some of the names there, Jamie Mackey, obviously hard work, he'd been in the Premier League, you think good signing. Um, I, I've, you know, known known him now for a long time. Jack Hobbs from Leicester, just one of those stalwart defenders. Kelvin Wilson, you know, bringing back from from his time up at Celtic, you thought, you know, big signing that to come back. You thought, right, we've now got a a, a good good nucleus of experienced players that will help us along the way. Um, and then what you probably didn't realise is that there was probably another 20 lads in the, in the dressing room who also felt that they could do a job and, and having a, a really big squad is what we did at the time. Um, probably wasn't something that we needed um, and we probably needed to get rid of a few to allow the likes of who you've just mentioned in the door um, so that we could have a good sort of harmonious dressing room, really. Um, what was Abdoon like? Because uh, <laughs> a, a former colleague of mine had a few run-ins with him. Uh, he rang him up once and started talking about the size of his balls, I remember, because he'd been dropped. And he said, I've got big balls. I'll prove it to you. I'm the best player in this club. And I think the story goes that he told you all he was the best player at the club in front of everyone. And uh, I don't know if that's true or not. What was he like? Yeah. Um, do you know what? Like some days you'd be amazed at some of the things he did uh, like on the training pitch, on the ball and stuff like he could, he could, you know, he could manipulate the ball in, in some ways that others could only dream of. But I think it was just one of those that he had that, ability to be able to just down tools himself like if it wasn't going his way or somebody kicked him or you know the attacker went in on him that was him he was he was finished with and that and you might as well have just you know sent him in because he he, he was he was done for the rest of the day or or even in a game um and you know you can see from sometimes in the games where if, if things aren't going right you know he fling his arm, arms in the air and I mean, it just it just wasn't something that we needed in the dressing room. But you know, I think anybody who would who would tell you that he probably wasn't, well, him and Rafik weren't um, weren't Billy signings. They were they were Fawaz's um, mates or um, or players at Fawaz or someone had told Fawaz to sign, so he signed them, and and it was just that was the way it went. So it just wasn't something that we needed at the, at the club at the time. Um, what went wrong then, do you think, for Billy in the second spell? Because you ended up, I think he was gone by the March. He lost to Derby after, I think it was like eight defeats in a row. Did it just feel like it was all unravelling a bit towards the end with Billy or not? Yeah, a little bit. I think he just, uh, again, like I say, I think he lost his way a little bit. I think we he expected us to be doing a lot better than we were. and And as I said, with the amount of players that we brought in, I think some sometimes the injuries and things like that weren't weren't helping us. Kelvin, you know, was never really fit enough um, to play a sustained amount of time. Um, you know, like the derby game, obviously that's the one that 
you know, no matter who, you know, how well you're doing in the league at the time, that's the one you always look at and that can rejuvenate you uh, or, or ultimately sometimes cost you, cost you your job. And, and that was the one thing that sort of happened with Billy. We sort of went into that game on, not on the back of a great run. And had we sort of won that game, he probably would have got another couple of games. And had we gone on a run, he would have probably stayed in, in his job. But because we got beaten well and truly beaten, you know, there was probably really no coming back for it. Uh, for him from that. Um, what was Gary Brazil like? The last manager, well, caretaker you played for, he brought in young lads like Brereton and Ben Osborne and sort of a bit of a changing of the guard as they went in a different direction. What was he like for experienced pros like yourself? Yeah, I mean, I remember sitting down with Gary and like the first time and he was like, look, I want you to go back to what you were. When you first came in, it was in the box. It was running in behind and stuff like that. And and I was just in a in a really sort of not in a bad place, but I was just sort of mentally and physically tired from probably what had gone on before, and and you know he brought in the likes of Ben Osborne and people like that, all people that he'd had in the youth team, and and listen, they were young at the time, and they've obviously a lot of them have gone on to have decent careers, but it it just it just didn't feel like that was the the right thing to be doing, but he knew them. He trusted them. He probably didn't trust and like a lot of the players that were in the, in the team at the time. So it was, it like you said, it was a bit of a change in the, the, the guard, but we just, uh, I think we just needed somebody to come in and, and I don't think too many of the players had sort of worked under Gary before or known Gary too much before. So we didn't really know what we were getting. Um, but we all already knew that Stuart Pearce was sort of coming in. So we knew that Gary wasn't going to be there for that long. And uh, and Stuart Pearce was coming in anyway. So it was it was a case of we were fine to, to the end of the season. We had a couple of games left and um, of the season, a few games left, a few months left. And, uh, and it was, we'll go again next year. I think you so you end up leaving that summer. I mean, from what you're saying about feeling a bit, you know, mentally jaded and everything, did it feel like the right time to go or, or was it a different did it go down a different way and you actually wanted to stay? What what was the story behind going? I uh yeah, I mean, I I turned up that pre-season on the back of having a a, a good off-season and um I came back in and I was I was really like having a really good go at it um and I was quite excited about being part of this season obviously you know Forest legend everything else Stuart Pearce England international all that sort of stuff um and I you know I was doing really well pre-season um and I felt like I was back to to what I I needed um and I, I had a conversation with Stuart um probably after about a week or two weeks of pre-season. And I said, like, you know, look, I've got a year left on my contract. I like it here. I'm, I'm excited about what, you, what you're doing. Um, is it something that you want? Would we be able to sit down and talk about a new deal and things like that? And he said, look, you know, I'm still analysing the squad, so on and so on, which I was fine with. Um, and then we go into play a uh, pre-season game against West Brom uh, at the City Ground. And I get pulled into um, a little room in the in the stadium. And he says, "Look, you know, you're not going to play today, um, and you're not going to play this year. So I want you to be part of the Mikel Antonio deal from Sheffield Wednesday to here. I want you to go the other way." And I just, 
I just hit rock bottom then that was me I was like whoa like how how can I go from sort of flying in pre-season to um to basically being shoved out the door um and uh and I and I obviously left the, the ground went home and just you know I was just in a bad way that day do you at that moment think are you are you angry you thinking what have I done wrong I mean like you say if you feel like you're flying it must have hit you like a, a, a you know bullet between the eyes type thing wasn't it yeah absolutely I, I I was expecting you know him to turn around and say you know being brought into the that room I thought he was going to turn around and go listen you've been doing really well we're going to do we're going to get you a new deal so on and whatever um but then to be told you're uh, you're no longer sort of required at the football club and we want you to be a bit part of another of another player coming in it literally hit me like a ton of bricks and um I remember sort of going home and and just you know not breaking down but I was just I just sat there and just went wow how on earth did that sort of like that was like a complete 360 turn like you know my career is now you know where do I go from here um so and I and then like you know, got rid of the game uh, on the Monday, walked in and I turned around to him and said, no, I'm not going to be part of that deal um, because you get your, you get the player that you want. They don't potentially want me. And then all of a sudden, in if I signed a two or three year contract with she- Sheffield Wednesday, they might not want me after six months and I'm in the exact same position. So it, it makes no sense. I said, if I'm going to leave this football club, I'm going to go somewhere where I want to go uh, and somewhere who wants me. So that's uh, that's kind of like how that one played out, really. Um, and then obviously I got onto the phone to my agent and everything else, and uh, and I ended up going back to my hometown club at Reading. Is that a hard conversation to have with a guy like Stuart Pearce? Because I think I'd be, um, we don't swear on this podcast, but I'd be pretty nervous going into that room <laughs> to speak to someone of his character and say, actually, yeah, this isn't happening. How did that? How, what, how did that go down? Yeah, no, it it wasn't. It was just uh, because I looked at it as, well, you've just basically told me my my career at this football club is over, so I'm going in and, and telling you point blank that I'm not going to help you out in any way um, because you want one player, you don't want me, which is fine. Um, I'll go somewhere where I want to go, not where you want me to go, and that's uh, and that's just how it sort of went really um nothing really it wasn't a, a long drawn out conversation it was pretty quick and and uh and yeah I mean I left after he told me that I probably left about five or six days later does Forrest overall feel like a bit of a case of what might have been for you then because it, it sounds like you you know perhaps the manager wasn't right for you initially at one point and then you get excited to work with a legend like Stuart Pearce and he and you're not for him and you know, you scored 15 goals, but do you feel like maybe, uh, you know, if things had panned out differently, you might have scored 25 goals and Forrest might have got promoted? Is there some kind of regret looking back there? I think I would have, I would have loved to have signed a new deal under Billy. Uh, I think had, had my contract been coming to an end at the season that Billy sort of took over and, and sort of going into is it 13, 14 season, I probably would have signed a new two or three year contract and been at Forest for for another couple of years and 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 that would have been I would have really enjoyed my time. Um but yeah, I just think uh change of ownership, change of managers, all that sort of stuff, multiple players in and out the door every season, every January. Um 
it it, it really does become a bit tiring. Um, so I I tried to I just tried to um, you know do the best I could and and I'll you know I'll, sometimes I just would love to have somebody to come in and similar to Lewis have somebody put your arm around you and say listen you you know you're doing really well or you know I need you to do this a little bit more and and have that sort of man manager who who looks after you a little bit and you know sometimes it might be that bit of tough love but um you know especially under Billy I, I remember you know I, I end up sometimes playing right wing and that was that was purely and simply because he knew that I would work really hard for him and and that was I, I could see under him that you know I was really enjoying my football regardless of the goals and but the the terms of performances and the levels that we were at it was just something that I really enjoyed then obviously he started to unravel then it you know two or three managers later and then you're out the door and it's just um yeah I, I I kind of wish it would have gone a different way but you know football's football and people move on and and that's just the way it works do you think sometimes fans don't appreciate you know uh that a move sometimes doesn't work out or a player can be struggling not saying your moves didn't work out but sometimes fans don't appreciate what's going on behind the scenes I suppose I'm thinking of someone like Rian Brewster at the moment who's obviously a very talented player and it's not not happening for him do fans sometimes have to bear in mind a player could be carrying an injury he could have stuff going on in his personal life he could have a manager who doesn't fancy him stuff like that do we as fans need to always have that in the back of our minds yeah but I don't think you'd ever have that in the back of your mind though. You know, when you bring somebody into a football club, you kind of expect them to do what they've been brought in to do, regardless of injuries, personal life. They, they're not seen in that way. They're seen as footballers. They're seen as somebody to to produce what they're, they're sort of paid really well to do. Um, whereas I think sometimes when fans meet players, they actually get to understand, you know, if the player is a little bit forthcoming in... Uh, in explaining why things aren't going well, you know, whether that be personally or collectively, um, fans actually turn around and go, all oh, right. Okay. So I understand now, uh, instead of sort of sitting around and, and around other people and, and sort of having their opinions and stuff. And then all of a sudden it, it sort of escalates a little bit further than, than what actually is actually happening, you know, in that person or in that dressing room. Um, you had plenty of good years after leaving Forest. You went, like you say, your hometown club, Reading. You, you played a lot of games for Southend and then you finish in Australia. Would you, as a 15-year-old kid, you know, have taken this career, you played for Ireland, obviously, as well, and West Brom. But, uh, would you? Is this as good as it could have gone for you, do you think? Uh, do you have any regrets? And would, if you could go back, would you do it all again? <laughs> Uh, I don't. I don't regret anything. Um, I feel like that's something that you know I would never. I would never do. Um, I've been lucky and fortunate enough to play for some amazing football clubs uh, and for some amazing managers. But you know, listen. Ultimately, if it could have gone a little bit differently, you, you just never know. But I, I always like to think to myself that I tried my hardest um, in every game that I had. Um, you know, I never tried to to miss. I always tried to score and it was never something that, you know, sometimes you hit purple patches and sometimes you don't. And uh, would I go and do it all again? Absolutely. Um, would I make a different decision? Who knows? Um, I, I, I feel I'm always happy and content in the decisions I made throughout my career. So, uh, so I'm pretty, pretty happy with the, 
if I was a 15 year old self again, I'd be saying if you could have that sort of 17 year career, um, I'd uh, I'd enjoy it again. I think. What's the plan for you now? Then uh, is it coaching, management, media, running a pub? What, what are you going to do? <laughs> if I run a pub, I don't think I'd be here that long. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, no. So I've got um, I've got my own little small coaching thing going, which is nice. Um, sort of locally, um, try and deal with uh, young up and coming kids, as well as dealing with. Um, some players who potentially haven't got clubs at the minute or uh, injury um, and they're coming back from their injuries and they need a little bit extra work um, or people looking for, for moves in, in January, just helping them out uh, as best I can. Um, sometimes it's, it's nice to, to, to give a, a second set of eyes over, over what they're doing and, and a different voice, which is, you know, something I probably would have really enjoyed if, uh, if it was around when I am, um, when I was playing. Um, but the sort of main goal is to, is to, to get into management, get into coaching at the, at the uh, elite level, whether that be, you know, first team level or, or academy level. Um, you know, I think some stage I would love to be a manager, but, you know, I understand that I have to earn my stripes and, and start at the bottom somewhere and, and just, just trying to get in is, is hard. So, Wherever that is, I'm I'm open to, um, as well as trying to do a little bit of media stuff, which I, I don't mind doing either. Does management not scare you at all? I think it would scare me. You know, as soon as anything goes wrong, you lose four games, like Dean Smith at Villa at the moment, for example. And you're probably out on your ear. I mean, you, you're handsomely rewarded financially, I'm sure, but it's not an easy job, is it? Does that not put you off at all? No, because I think, one, I'd, I'd sort of like to think that... <laughs> You, you sort of set yourself out like it wouldn't go wrong. Why would it go wrong? Yeah. Um, but you understand that um, that there is obviously going to be some tough times in there. Um, but it's, I think it's consistency. It's consistency in your message. It's making sure that the players, you know, buy into what you're doing and um, understanding why you're doing it, the process of, of how you get to the top. Um, and, you know, being a good man manager because I've played for some who are are good man managers and it and it works out really well and I've played for some who literally don't take an interest in in you at all um so and it doesn't work out so I think that's one thing that today's managers have to be really good at is man management it's understanding that the players are you know from one to the next is a completely different person have a completely different social life and personal life and family life and everything else so you have to get to know them on a personal level so that you can try and get the best out of them so who are you modeling yourself on there as a manager i don't mean just forest i mean throughout your career who are you taking bits from here and there to to round yourself as a coach and a manager um well i like uh like i had roy hodgson at west brom for a bit and he was a very good man manager he he gave everybody five minutes a day which was great it you know it made you feel like you had someone that you could openly talk to um so that that's a good a good start and obviously you know he went on to his 70s so that was it's not a bad managerial career to sort of follow um but I love the I love the sort of Jurgen Klopp Pep Guardiola sort of thing and I know that's like top top managers you're sort of looking at here but it's it just shows that they love playing for their managers they are they they understand 
a lot of their players. They understand why they do what they do and, and they explain it in, in such detail that there's no grey areas, but they sit, they don't take any fools um, in terms of what, you know, if you're not doing it, you don't play, that's it. You, you either do it and you play or you you don't do it and you get out because there's no uh, there's no there's no middle ground here and it's not a dictatorship but it's it's something that you have to un- get them to understand this is the reason we're doing it because if we're going to be the best we have to do it this way um just lastly then to finish i guess uh am i right saying reading's your club i suppose you would say would it is i'd say fair? so yeah i mean do you still keep tabs on on forest and your other clubs and always kind of wish them well in the back of your mind yeah, absolutely. Always, um, yeah. One of my good friends is one of the coaches at Forest at the time at, at, at this minute, Stephen Reed. So, um, so I was, but you know, obviously when he went in under Chris Hewitt, I was like, like really happy for him. But then obviously it didn't really work out too too well for Chris. But he still stayed there under um, under the new management. And it's um, listen, Forest is a massive football club and someone that shouldn't really be in the championship but it is and it and it probably will be for another couple of seasons until somebody gets it going and uh if steve cooper is that man then then great and you know good times ahead and thirty thousand people singing at uh at, at the city ground every weekend or every other weekend is is something that i always really enjoyed it's uh you know it makes for a great atmosphere it makes for a great buzz around the city um so yeah, it's always someone. It's definitely. I mean, I look out for all my clubs, but and, and want them all to do well, apart from when they play each other. So, uh, so yeah, it is something that you sort of look out for um, and wish them well every season, which is good. Um, what's Stephen Reed like? I don't think fans know much about him. He's only, he did a bit of media around the time when Chris Hewton left, but uh, and fans seem to like him a lot because he got that win at Huddersfield and changed formation and everything. But what's Stephen Reed like as a person then? Good. Yeah. Great guy. Um, intense. Wants it, wants it done properly. Um, expects the players to buy in and expects the players to do it properly um, because he did it properly as a player. Um, and he's got presence as well, which is something that um, managers definitely need. Um, he's got that sort of stand there on the touchline and bark out orders. And, and when he talks, you listen and, He's got that friendly side, which is great. Um, and he'll be your mate and everything else. But when you need to be told, he'll tell you in no uncertain terms, which, you know, sometimes people need. Um, so he's he's definitely a manager in in waiting, um, whether that be at Forest or whether that be somewhere else. Um, and he's and he's learned under some some top managers as well. He was at Burnley, learned under Sean Dice. He obviously had Roy, Steve Clark as well. So, you know, he's he's learned under under a lot of decent managers so um i'd be excited for wherever he goes in at, at whatever stage i'd be excited to be um to see how he does great stuff right well you we shall leave it there um thanks very much for everyone who listens long as ever and do give us a good rating and do subscribe on itunes or uh youtube simon thanks very much for giving us so much of your time i really appreciate it pleasure no problem and we shall be back uh next week thank you very much and we'll see you soon Thank you for listening to Garibaldi Red, a Nottingham Forest podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, then please let us know. We love hearing your feedback. We'll be back soon with another episode. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.